I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jennifer Ann Moses, author and journalist and author of the book of Joshua, a novel. 18-year-old Joshua Cushing wakes up in a psych ward, not knowing how he got there. Worse, he has only one eye, and no one in his family will tell him what happened to his girlfriend, Sophie. The one thing he knows for sure is that something happened, leaving him with a self and a life he barely recognizes. Author Jennifer Ann Moses weaves an unforgettable story from family secrets, friendship, faith, love, and redemption. It brings readers deeply into the lives of those who suffer from mental illness, as well as the friends and family affected by it. And Jennifer Ann is featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jennifer. Thank you. Good morning. The book of Joshua, it's about mental illness. So was is there something, uh, obviously, that motivated you to write this book that if coming from maybe personal experience, your own personal experience, your own family, uh, why the topic of mental illness? Well, uh, yeah, why Joshua? Why Joshua? Right, right. He wakes up, and as, as you said in your lovely introduction, he the, the, the book opens with Joshua waking up in a, in a psych ward and not knowing what happened to him, um, and not knowing what happened to his eye, and not recognizing himself at all. Um, so, yeah, why Joshua? I, did, I actually did struggle with this book for, I'm going to say I rewrote it 20 times before I finally got this story down. Um, in, in a way that made sense, um, that cohered for me, you know, in my soul. But um, the, the story, the original story, um, comes from um, my, own, my own youth. I, um, I, my first boyfriend, when I was 17 years old, I, I, um, I met and had a, my first romance with my, my first boyfriend at a summer program outside of Boston, I met this lovely, handsome, freckled, smart boy named Danny, and we had this summer romance, um, and when the summer was over, uh, he returned to his home in Los Angeles, and I returned to my home in Virginia, my parents' home, and we, uh, we became friends, and we wrote letters back and forth. Um, and then we both ended up in college in the East Coast so we could um, resume our friendship. I mean, we were able to, to see each other during that time. Um, he went to Princeton, just outside of of, um, of New York. And you're, you're in Boston, right, Catherine? Actually, I'm in New York. Oh, you're in New York? Yeah, oh, I'm in New York I, City. Yeah. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you were in Boston. Sorry. Anyway, I went to college in Boston. And um, where did you go uh, to college? I have to do that. I went that to Tufts. And I went to Tufts. In, I went to Medford. Boston University, and my kids okay. went to Tufts. But anyway, go there on. There you go. Right, yeah. Jumbo's rule. So um, <laughs> I, 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 I loved I loved college. I loved I loved Boston. I never wanted to leave. In any way, uh, at any rate, um, in real life, what happened was um, Danny had this sort of fascination with me, and he, he that he became uh, in college. He went from being the sunny, gorgeous, freckled, lovely, popular, soft-spoken boy 
um, you know, he was the boy, he was that golden boy who was sort of slated for some kind of dazzling adult excellence. You, you didn't know what it would be, you just knew he, he had it, he was that boy. And he became increasingly, like, just weird and dark and suffering. Um, and um, he, 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 I wouldn't say he stalked me, but it was, he had this weird fascination with me such that... Um, I went abroad, this is a true story, I went to um, London to study my junior year abroad just the second semester in, in the spring, of the, sec- the second semester of my junior year, I went to London to study at the University of London and I flew to London in January for the beginning of, of um, my semester and Danny, the real life Danny that year was in Paris studying for his junior year abroad and he somehow found out I don't know, maybe I'd written to him and told him that I was going to be in London. He found me there in a city of, what was it then, 8 million people in the early 80s? He actually found me uh, And Jennifer, but I have to stop you because I want to, like, obviously there's something, a little bit of a piece missing. You're dating, you're going out. He goes to Princeton, the golden boy gets into Princeton. You're still dating him, but you broke up with him and you just... No, No, we became friends. The piece of the story is we weren't dating. But he had this fascination with me. We, we only dated that one summer in high school. And then it, it became a kind of passionate friendship. When, when I say passionate friendship, we were the kind who would stay up till three in the morning talking about the meaning of life. But it was not a romantic relationship. He did have this fascination with me. Um, so he was sort of stalking me across a couple different continents. I wasn't scared of him. Well, lo and behold, we all go back to college. And my mother calls me. Um, she and his mother were friends um, through uh, Jewish communal service work um, and told me that Danny had gone, had taken the weekend, left Princeton for the weekend, gone to New York City, was staying at a Y, at a YMCA in New York City. Um, and during the weekend, he um, took out his own eye. So hmm. this... This was the beginning. This was, this was the expression, the first major expression that he, this golden boy, this Danny, had um, suffered a severe psychotic breakdown. He thought he was Jesus or, or some kind of savior of the world. He talked that he said he needed to make a blood sacrifice to save the world. He had some kind of um, Jesus delusion. And a Jewish boy, by the way, which doesn't mean anything one way or another, particularly since Jesus himself was Jewish, but um, Danny was, was schizophrenic. And and there were anyway, no signs he, that you were able to, and, and I understand the character in the book, Joshua is based on Danny, but any did you have any inclination, any signs that he was deteriorating, that he was, or maybe you really Oh, sure. To, yeah. But I myself was 19, 20 years old. I, I didn't know what it meant. He was, I mean, he was getting darker and weirder and just, you know, strange. Like he had bad, heavy, kind of icky karma. I didn't want to be with him. I mean, I didn't, I didn't. I loved him as my friend. We, we had a lot in common. He was somebody who was very important to me at that time in my life. All my girlfriends were saying, why don't you go out with him? He's so cute. And something, I, I, something inside me stopped me. I Do you think know because was he was so him. bright and so talented, uh, particularly maybe so bright that he, he sort of masks some of those symptoms in a certain way? Or you, 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 you no, I don't, I don't no. think so. I think nobody, I think everyone was clueless. 
I think, you know, his parents knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. I mean, I wasn't close to him. I was, you know, on a distant campus, and I wasn't a relative, and I wasn't a girlfriend. Um, I'm sure everybody who was close to him and loved him knew something was wrong, and nobody knew what it was or how to prevent prevent it from getting worse. His own family didn't know he was heading for a schizophrenic break. Um, whatever they were or were not doing to try to help him, it, it was it was too little, too late. But I think, um, particularly in those those days, that parents, families were not guided around this. And and I've since learned, actually, through Danny's parents, that what Danny Danny's symptoms, what he exhibited, were classic signs uh, of, of a growing psychosis, um, which typically does hit in in late adolescence which was exactly what happened to Danny. And but I think one of the problems with that, from a social worker perspective anyway, or a counselor, is that a lot of those symptoms, they're exacerbated, but teenagers themselves often sh- exhibit some of you know, exhibit some oh, right. of the signs. Oh, right. Teenagers are crazy anyway. They're crazy. They they're anxious. They nuts. get into sometimes drugs and, and, and alcohol. Right. And so it, it's really hard to discern, is this really, are you on the road to a psychotic break or is this just normal teenage behavior? Yeah. Um, I mean, looking back on it, I, again, I myself was 19 and was hardly in a position to to uh, make any call on him. But um, I can say from having raised three people who are now, thank you, God, in well, well into their 20s, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm past that. I mean, none of them is, is as cuckoo crazy as each of my three kids could be on occasion. There wasn't this overriding sense of something being desperately wrong. You know, it just like you—you you could tell it was like I can't even necessarily define it in words. But my kids, yeah, they go off the rails sometime. But they—they—they were there was something about them always that was in balance. They were inside themselves who they were. Um, you didn't have the sense that something was going really, really wrong. The other thing I want so to mention. So it wasn't that, that dark and icky that you described. I'm going back to your description. Yeah, it was yeah, like Danny. This dark. This awful darkness, but also with Danny, something you said, like kids that age might do drugs. Um, uh, people who are deeply, deeply uh, mentally ill—I'm not talking about even emotionally ill—which is another, <laughs> another um, bag of you know, big, big bag of worms. But people who are mentally ill often do self-medicate with drugs. Um, I mean, that's very, very typical among. The homeless population, they're, they're, they, they, you know, they need medical, psychiatric help, and they're not getting it. So what they're doing is drinking themselves into, into oblivion, um, which, you know, I might want to do, too, if I had, had um, voices raging inside my head 24-7. Um, so anyway, so Danny, um, the real Danny, did recover from his wounds went on, finished college, moved back to Los Angeles. Actually, I believe he got a master's degree, I think in social work, and he was on the right meds. And as far as I know, and now I was getting the information from my mother, who, who loved, my late mother loved to gossip, and um, she would call with, with, with updates on Danny and Danny's entire family, who she kind of loved to gossip about. They were very glamorous, wealthy Los Angelinians, and she, she liked talking about them. But, um, sorry. She was your perfect source. With Danny, I, by this time, I'm married and, like, having babies. I have no time. I'm, my, I'm now freaking out. You know, I'm psychotic now from <laughs> lack of sleep. I've got 
I've got a four-year-old and two, you know, newborn twins. And, you know, what happened to my glamorous New York life where I was wearing cool clothes all the time? You know, suddenly I'm, every day, every time I look down, I'm covered with spit up and I don't know where I live and what happened to my hair and my future and so forth. And I'm covered with babies and my mother calls and says, are you sitting down? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sitting down. I was 36, I remember this, and Mom, my mother tells me that Danny had lit himself on fire, doused himself with gasoline and lit himself on fire um, in his parents' um, front yard in Los Angeles. And that was the end of Danny. And so this story, this story, and it's not my story to tell, really. It's not my story. It's his family. It's Danny. Um, but this story just stuck to me and stuck to me and stuck to me and eventually became the novel you've got in front of you, the book of Joshua. Um, but with the book of Joshua, Joshua in some ways is based on Danny, that he's a, Joshua's a golden boy also. He's his mother's favorite. He has a younger brother. He's a great runner. He's handsome. He can sort of do no wrong. Um, and in, this, in, in his senior year of high school, he, he, he goes... He goes off off the deep end, um, and and he also has a fascination for his love of his life, Sophie. His Sophie is is his lodestar, is his his everything, and he's envisioning his life with her, um, their future together, which of course happens in high school. People meet their future husbands and wives in high school and get married after college and live. You know, and, and and have marriages that last forever. That that happened among some of my own high school classmates. Um, it's not particularly far fetched, I don't think. Um, but Danny, uh, sorry, um, Joshua, Joshua, my character, yeah, doesn't know. What, Sophie's disappeared by the time the the book opens, and he's and as has his eye, as has his life, as has who he was. But I wanted to give Joshua some way out, some way, some hope, something that he could, um, some way through and forward. So um, in, in the book of Joshua, one thing readers have told me, which, which I like because I, I intended it to be like this, readers have told me that they, they couldn't put the book down. It's a mystery because the mystery is what happened to Joshua. <clears throat> it's Joshua's own mystery. <clears throat> well, we me. don't want to give it, we don't want to. I'm not going it, to. Yeah, we no, don't want to give it away. Ahead. But I, so I'm going to ask you another question because you said, yes, Joshua is based on Danny, but not all of it is Danny. It come, and not your story to tell, although it is, you, you did tell the story. It is your story. Where do the other characters come from or where do the other parts fit in? You know, it's not just about, uh, you know, Danny and your relationship. Right, yeah. No, no, not at all. Thank you. Um, no, it's, um, there, Joshua also, I, I made him up. I mean, he is not Danny-like except in these sort of exterior ways. His interior life, Danny um, it, the, Danny writes his own story in the first person. And Danny, uh, sorry, I keep mixing them up. Joshua writes his own story in the first person. And Joshua is really funny. He's a, a funny guy. His, his um, psychotic break has sort of given him in some ways, um, very skewed vision because he doesn't know who he is, but in other ways, very clear vision because all the uh, BS that he's been told and that he's learned, that we all learn sort of as we grow up. You know, you have to get straight A's because you have to do this and you have to do that. That all falls away from him. 
he doesn't care about all that stuff anymore. He has very clear vision about sort of emotional resonances and how people relate to each other and the junk people tell each other and the the masks people put on to, to, to present a certain false self to the world. And suddenly he's, he's resonating with all that, and he writes about his, his own journey. He's, he's very funny is what I'm saying. So the book, so it's about the psychotic break. We know that from the opening chapter, but, and about his trying to figure out what happened to him and, and to, to everybody in his life during this period of his life that he can't remember. But as he recovers himself and, and does find out what happens, he's also really funny about it because being that age is, is hilariously funny because people are completely absurd. <laughs> you know, and I, of course, adults are also completely absurd, which is why we have stand-up comedy <laughs> and it's such a rich field. Human beings are absurd uh, and, and Joshua suddenly pierces this, you know, is able to pierce it. Um, so I did write Joshua as a character with, with really, despite his one eye, he has very clear vision and, um, and, and tells a kind of piercing truth about his own story. And, um, and what do you think? Of, because I think that's that's very. I like that the humor. Because sometimes people forget about the humor uh, when there are dark stories to tell, or you're talking about mental illness. And so mm-hmm. when you bring that into the book, I think that it, it adds a whole new, I guess, flavor. I, guess. I don't know if you would call it that. But what do you think the reaction will is, or you do know, of people who read your book? It is a page turner. Um, who have or do suffer from mental illness or other family members and who have, I assume that you have spoken to people who have reacted to the book and have been in this kind of a position. Well, I have um, just a little bit, actually. I kind of, <laughs> I live in the suburbs in this little bubble where I just walk my dogs, you know, and, and that's go to it. the grocery store and schlep around. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I sent the book to my siblings. I'm one of four, and I sent it, um, actually, I sent it to, 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 not directly to my siblings, I sent it to their kids who are the right age for it, and um, I sent it to my, one of my nieces who's, her name is Sophie, actually, in New York, and um, she's 17 and just a brilliant girl. Um, she's also on the spectrum. She's, she's, brilliant. she's a brilliant kid. She's like, you know, she, she understands black holes and stuff and speaks Japanese and God knows what else. But, and I sent it to her for her birthday, and my sister <laughs> took it from her didn't let her have it, read it herself, and didn't want to give it to her daughter because she thought that because her daughter herself feels so out of place in high school and doesn't quite understand what, how to be a teenager, that it might be too upsetting for my own niece. But my sister well, wrote back to me and said, I love this. <laughs> but I think, Jennifer, that you've really hit on something because that's one of the issues, that taking the book away from her daughter when she really needed to sit down with read it herself, and then sit down and discuss it with her daughter, especially if she sees her on some kind of a spectrum. And that hiding and the shame and all this, those emotions that are attached to it are what get people into trouble, and they end up like Danny. So there um, is... You know what? Yeah. I'm sorry. That's, that is such an excellent point, and I'm so pleased you raised it. There's a... Um, it's a cliche in 12-step circles, you know, our secrets keep us 
sick, right? Um, and I think that's so true for, for everybody. Your secrets keep you sick. Um, I grew up myself in this family in Virginia, and we were kind of deep in the woods, and we didn't have a community around us to kind of bolster us up, so whatever, like there was stuff going on in my family, and it was almost a secret to us, to me. I mean, I didn't know till I was well into my 40s that some of the things that went on at home were really not okay. <laughs> I didn't know. Because it was this sort of family, you know, the, the get smart, the cone of silence that would come down on the spies so they could, we had like the cone of silence over us. Um, but I think that's true with, with any kind of, really anything that ails us as human beings, everything from a terrible psychosis like the real Danny and my fictional Joshua suffer from to the normal aches and pains of life, uh, a divorce, a kid who's struggling. We, we really need each other. We need to say, look, things are bad at home. Things, my heart hurts. I don't know what to do. Help. And that's... Isolation. Yeah. Because physical and emotional isolation does not help. And it does exacerbate the problem. Um, and, and here you were, you said you were some, you're Virginia or you're isolated, but you mm-hmm. also, and you're bright or you wouldn't have gone to Tufts. So we assume you're, uh, doing well in school, that you'd be somebody who would be out there, who would maybe have more of a, maybe sense, be more sensitive to all the family secrets and those kinds of things, but not necessarily so, I guess, right? Well, it, I mean, in my, in my case, um, and this typically happens in families that are off, you know, one of the kids sort of becomes almost like the vector, and, and, and that was me. So um, that was me. So I was kind of the black sheep. Um, I did really well in school. Uh, I, so I always performed well on the outside. We were family. We were kind of typical um, of, of families that are off, you know, from the outside looking in, we were, we were dazzlingly perfect, but everything was off on the inside. So we, we were the, not literally white picket fence and the flowers at the windows, but uh, metaphorically so. So I, yes, I did go ahead. No, nobody would have ever known that anything was amiss, not from looking at me. Um, uh, we, we did, or my parent, really, I mean, we, we looked, we looked pretty sweet. Um, and my family, which is, we're not little kids anymore, but my siblings, my father, my father is still living. Um, my mother died, uh, 16 years ago or so of cancer. My father remarried. So it's a big, huge family now. Lots of grandchildren. They're beginning to get married now themselves. And I'm telling you, my family looks like something out of a movie. We are beautiful and perfect. Well, what, in your beautiful and perfect family, what is the message to your grandchildren? Or do you have a message? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, what I've told my kids and my husband, I've told our kids, and we think it's more or less taken is like, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart, be true to your heart, and try to partner. Look, I believe in God personally. Um, I'm Jewish. I don't particularly believe in a Jewish version of God. Um, but Judaism is, is my tradition, and I have a personal relationship with, with a power that I consider God, and I have um, raised my children to try to partner with that source of wisdom and goodness and, and love um, uh, in, the, in the universe. And I think to a large extent they, they do 
they do follow that path to, to the degree that they can. Because I, I think what happens with um, many families, including the one I grew up in, is, is you're supposed to play a certain role. And that role makes you, creates a false self, which is something Joshua, my Joshua, who I created in words, suffers from in his family, that he was sort of understood that he, that his false self was more important than his true self. Now, that's not why somebody becomes psychotic. You know, you can become emotionally ill, maybe start having nervous headaches, something like that, from having parents who don't um, uh, accept you as who you are and love you for who you are. Um, in the case of Joshua and, and the real-life Danny, uh, a psychotic break is, is a mental illness. It's, it's no more the sufferer's fault or the parent's fault than, than a cancer is, right? It's something that happens inside the, the body um, that, overwhelms, that overwhelms the body so that the body can't function normally. Um, so I, the I message really is, I mean, yes, one can suffer from mental illness and it's not necessarily or isn't anyone's fault. But for no. a, yeah, a lot of, but then what are you, how are you going to handle it and what are you going to do about it yourself well, and for, your family? There are options. Yeah, we only have two minutes left, so I want, oh. so, yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, there um, are resources available. I have a very, very dear friend in, in Baton Rouge. We, we lived in Baton Rouge for many, many years where everybody is absolutely eccentric and crazy, which I loved about it. And with four children, wonderful family, and um, the third of their children was sort of just kind of going cuckoo crazy, a lot of depression, and they finally, the family finally got a diagnosis for this young lady, wonderful girl. Um, that she is bipolar, and the whole family found support and goes to to support groups um, for for the young lady, and it's helped them just deal with it. It's just the rea- it's just their reality. It's so there's no judgment around it. Just as if you had um, just as if you had a child who was born with asthma, you have to just deal with that. So it's just about dealing. This is this is the cards that 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 the young lady's been dealt and that the family's been dealt, and this is how they're going to play those cards by getting the right support, medical support for right. for the young lady. So and we're still at a point it. where we need to eradicate or or at least get rid of as much as we can the stigma surrounding mental illness, and I think your book helps to do that really. Uh, Thank you. You know, we have, as I said, one minute left. So, website we can go to more information for more information about you and about your book. I do have a website. Um, it's my name. It's uh, www.jenniferannmosesarts.com. I'm also a painter, so my paintings are up there, um, and they're all for sale. Uh, and it has links to my articles and op-ed essays and stuff like that. Um, that's that's it. That's what I've got. That's great. <laughs> my, my Je- well, Jennifer, it was really great having you on the show today. Thank and you. And Jennifer Ann Moses is the author of the book of Joshua, a novel. She's also a painter. I guess that would be another show. But anyway, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is attorney Andrew Stern and author of Justice Under the Rubble, The Salvation Army Building Collapse. In June 2013, the roof of a Philadelphia Salvation Army thrift store collapsed, killing six people and injuring 13 in one day. As frantic family members searched for loved ones and the city responded with horror, one question emerged from the rubble. Who was responsible for this tragedy? Andrew Stern shares his personal experience as the attorney for Mariah Plekin, a Ukrainian immigrant who was buried for 13 hours, crushed under layers of debris, and lost half her body, whose medical bills were projected at $50 million. Currently a partner at Klein Inspector, Andy Stern specializes in malpractice and other substantial personal injury cases. In 2017, he won the largest recovery in Pennsylvania history for one of the victims of the Salvation Army building collapse. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Andy. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have to say your book is a page-turner. I didn't expect it to Uh be, but it is. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, I do remember when all of this happened, and uh, then, of course, I know the trial went on for, what, three years, a long time. And um, Okay, so now you've written the book. Who, I guess, and the, I don't know if the crux of it would be, who was responsible for this tragedy? Well, that's uh, that's the the big question. Um, and <clears throat> what was unique about the civil trial that I was involved with is that it was the only opportunity, by way of a court proceeding, for all potentially responsible parties to be in the same courtroom. Because before we got started with the civil case, the DA at the time uh, chose to target two people involved with the collapse, and they were criminally prosecuted. So, um, ultimately, it's interesting, uh, when everyone was in the courtroom, uh, the jurors found, which is who I believed all along was most responsible, the Salvation Army. 
and uh, you wouldn't expect that. Um, but it was these were a unique set of facts, and we can talk more about that. Yeah, let's talk about the players. Who were they? And as you said, the Salvation Army. No, no, we you know we think of this, or I think of the Salvation Army as you know this charitable organization doing the right thing. Uh, of course, after reading your book, uh, I think I've changed my maybe my perception, my attitude towards the organization. But anyway, so the players. Who were they? Who are they? Okay, so what you have, <clears throat> there's a building that's being demolished in Philadelphia <clears throat> in 2013, and it's next door, as you pointed out, to the Salvation Army Thrift Store. The building is owned by a man named Mr. Bassiano, who, interestingly enough, was involved with the pornography industry. Um, he hires people uh, to help him demolish this building. So Mr. Bassiano is the owner, is a key player. An architect by the name of Mr. Marinakis becomes a key player. Uh, the excavate the uh, contractor, Mr. Uh, Campbell, is a key player, and the excavator operator, who's using a machine to take the building down, becomes a key player. Uh, the other major key player, of course, is the Salvation Army that's right next door. So what happens is, and <clears throat> as the case develops and what we find out, is the Salvation Army really was given a lot of information relating to warnings and dangers associated with the project. Yes, it's true, they were not actually the ones doing the demolition work, but under the law, uh, even though they're a charity, they're operating a retail store. They have a very high degree of duty, understandably, to protect people in that store, customers and employees. And even though they were made aware of dangers, they ignored them, turned a blind eye, and didn't even tell the people in the store about the warnings that were given to them. So the person that held the keys to the store was in the best position to close it, to look into these things, to protect people, didn't do it. And because of that, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, many people died. My clients sustained grievous injuries. Uh, that's sort of the nutshell of uh, what happened. And so why the didn't story, they do it? I want to go, yes. Andy, why did, sure. what was, what was the, obviously there was a relationship between the Salvation Army or the, the, the and these people who were giving them admonitions, telling them you've got to do something, and they're refusing to do something. Uh, so this this tragedy could have been prevented. So well, talk to us about the relationship, why they wouldn't do anything, or why they didn't respond. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting question as well, because um, I think a lot of the lawyers on the, on the victim side were a little reluctant to solely focus blame on the Salvation Army, which is what I did. And I was willing to get to your question about motive. Why would they do this? And I really believed a lot of it was based on money. And you'd think, well, gee, they're a charity. Why? I mean, but uh, people probably don't know this. The net worth of the Salvation Army is in excess of $10 billion. We're talking about having the same kind of net worth or more than the Nike Corporation, Amazon, other major corporations in the United States, and people don't know that. Now, the jurors didn't get to hear that evidence, and the case ultimately resolved. There was a liability verdict. But I really believed, and we can talk more about that, but I really believed that they wanted to keep the store open, in part really to make money, and they just didn't believe what they were being told. They didn't want to believe it. In fact, ironically, on the day this happened, they called it Family Day. It was a sales day when more people would come to the store to buy things. So well, said, um, I do believe it was partly motivated by money. I, I think it, you mentioned in the book that one of the wives of one of the 
uh, captains in the, who were part of this in the Salvation Army told her husband that maybe they should get the people out of the building, but they didn't listen to her. So that that is correct. Could, that is yeah. correct. It's very interesting. They, in the Salvation Army, they're, of course, they're not really military officers, but they use the ranks of, of you know a major and things like that. And <clears throat> this this woman, uh, she was a major. Her husband was a major. It's kind of funny in the room. When they were in the same room, she was referred to as Mrs. Major, which I think the jurors found interesting. But in any event, she said, you know, gee, with all this going on, why don't we temporarily close the store and relocate it? To which her husband responded, no, 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 there's no need for that, and then went on with business. And that was two weeks before the collapse. So uh, I think what jurors found was, uh, and I want to say this right up front, the Salvation Army overall is a wonderful charity. But in this instance, in Philadelphia, uh, relating to these issues and the people that were pushing the buttons and pulling the switches, they failed miserably in their mission. They killed, well, six people were killed and 13 were injured in one day. Can we talk about the actual collapse, like what happened? Yes. I found that yes. so what happened, tragic yes. but interesting. But it, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so we're now June 5th, 2013. This demolition is taking place right next door. And i got to tell you, just looking at it and seeing what was happening, anyone would think, wow, that looks really dangerous. And the Salvation Army tried to downplay that. Now, in all fairness, the people doing the demolition did a lousy job. They were not competent. They really didn't know what they were doing. But on the other hand, the owner hired them, understanding he was going to get a bargain. So make no mistake about it, there's definitely fault to go around here. What happens is they're doing a lousy demolition job, to make a long story short, it's dangerous, and the, what's left of that building next door collapses onto the Salvation Army. It just completely flattens the Salvation Army thrift store. Many people, six people die, and my client was trapped under the rubble, Maria Plekin, for about 13 hours. Now, that's a long time. And the people that were searching for her by the time nighttime came Basically, they knew they were looking for her. They'd given up in terms of her being alive. They just didn't expect it. And it's now late at night, and it gets quiet. The hum of the city, as this uh, captain described, it got quiet. And you heard a, v a feeble voice under the rubble, similar to the way a voice uh, of a baby doll sounds when it's winding down. Help, help. He couldn't even believe what he was hearing. He throws his helmet off, it's a hot night, he's sweating, he's on his knees, he's, he's moving things, and he starts to hear more and more, it's Maria Plekin. And they bring in the dogs who help him locate her, and sure enough, he says, we've got a live one. She was alive. It was just, it was, it was a miracle. She was referred to as the miracle on Market Street, and so once she was found, immediately she wanted to, to get up, to move. She was in a crouched position, like a catcher's position, for 13 hours. He had to keep her down because she was so in such a tight position. There's all kinds of toxins that build up in your body. If she had moved, they would have been immediately released and it probably would have killed her. So he had to keep her pressed down while all of these fire rescue people are, are, are pulling her out. Unfortunately, although she survived, she paid a very heavy price because ultimately she ended up having literally half of her body amputated. Among you other describe injuries. it in the book as a guillotine amputation. Yeah, they have to. They had to because of the problems relating to infection. They sort of they, they, they perform what's called a guillotine operation, which basically, to make a long story short, leaves 
the wound kind of open so it could drain. And I realize we're in the morning here, and I won't get into great detail, but I will say she underwent all kinds of intensive therapies to try to control infection, one of which included what's known as maggot therapy. Literally maggots, they're sterile, are used and spread over her body because of their ability to eat in a very finite fashion necrotic material. I mean, that's how bad her condition was. She had undergone so many surgeries, they had to do things like this to keep her alive. And, you know, you, you wonder how, how could somebody survive this and what keeps them going, right? How does, how does somebody able to do that? That was my and next question. Is your, yeah. yeah, yeah. And what she will tell you is it was her children because she has a really interesting story. And that's what I think is, is, is important to know about this book. It's not just a legal case. It's a story. There's all kinds of themes and subplots and themes within this story. And one of them is about Maria Plekin. She's an immigrant. Of course, we hear a lot in the news today about, and politics about immigrants. Well, this immigrant story is a very nice one. She came to the United States from Ukraine, left her family in an effort to help another family member in the United States, and constantly sent money and supplies back to, to help her children be educated and go on to great things. Her daughter's a pharmacist. Her son is very successful businessman, and they stayed in Ukraine. She came to the United States in 2002. And so she, she did all, she worked hard, ironically, took care of, an, of a person who was in need, an elderly person, for years. And so there's this whole story about these wonderful things that Maria Plekin did before all of this happened, and how she came and worked hard in the United States and became a U.S. citizen, only to have all of this happen to her. Um, her daughter and, you, and her son have, have come over. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say you became, as you describe it, con- I don't know if I can use the word consumed. I mean, your relation, your whole life became consumed uh, with this trial, and also with your relationship with her profession. You know, it did. I yeah, she's I, she's yeah. the most clearly one of the most remarkable people that I've ever known. I, I don't know how. You know, this, again, the story of her, the immigration and her desire to take care of her children, it's what kept her going. Uh, but her, the strength that she showed, her willingness, her belief in me, and the challenges that I faced, because understand that we went into the civil trial, the jurors heard evidence that the, there were two people that had been convicted, the contractor and the excavator operator, even though, again, in the criminal side of it, not everyone was in the courtroom. Um, so we had to overcome that. We had to overcome the idea of trying to blame a charity. Charity had legal responsibilities to protect those people. But look, let's face it, there's a lot of people who like the Salvation Army, so we had to overcome that. And I believe the Salvation Army was the most responsible all along. Um, but also, it should be noted, they had the money to pay. The others didn't. So if we didn't, if the Salvation Army was not found principally responsible, and the jurors found them 75% responsible, by the way, uh, then everybody loses. I should add that when they heard the evidence in the case, the judge had what is called bifurcated the case. That means that the, the case was proceeding just on who was responsible. There was really no evidence introduced relating to the horrible deaths and the injuries they really didn't hear that because the judge wanted them to focus on assessing responsibility. So there was a verdict in early 2017 where the jurors found the Salvation Army principally responsible. They only found the people that were criminally convicted. It's interesting. They had to find them to some degree responsible. They were found only 1% responsible. 
Uh, and then the other players, you can sort of fill in the blanks relating to the, the owner. And they had, but the, clearly the one they believe was the most responsible was the Salvation Army. That's what led then to the monetary resolution by way of settlement and arbitration. Now, cases like this, and maybe there are no cases like this that you necessarily have had before, but, I mean, how does that impact you? I mean, does it keep you up at night, all night? How, I mean, well, I I'll tell you, it yeah. was an incredible responsibility that I, I mean, I was thrilled and honored <clears throat> to be representing the most horribly injured victim in this day of infamy that will forever exist in Philadelphia's history. But it was an incredible responsibility because if I didn't deliver, if I didn't get her the compensation she needed, I mean, her life is bad enough. I mean, where, where would she be? She's only in her 50s. She's got all these medical bills. She constantly needs medical care. I mean, I'd even get into her other injuries. She had horrific kidney-related injuries. She was in renal failure. Because she was on extended mechanical ventilation so long, she lost her voice. One of the arguments I asked the jurors to do was to be her voice, to speak for her through their verdict. But, you know, I'm sure you've seen the commercials, the smoking commercials of people who put that device up to their throat so they can talk, that vibrating device. That's how she speaks. She can't even talk. So, you know, there were all these horrible things that happened to her, and the only silver lining, because really every enjoyable element of her life was taken, the only silver lining was that she was rejoined with her children. She has her own home in the Philadelphia area. She has top-flight medical care, and she's trying to move forward with her life. So, and, and now what is your, are you your relationship with her? I keep in touch with her all the time. Um, And I generally do that with my clients, but especially with her, I developed a close, she's not just my client, she's a close, she's a a good friend of mine. And I won't get into the details, but ironically, one of her children is facing immigration issues on top of everything. And this is one of the children that is there with her family to help her mom. She has to deal with immigration issues. I'll just leave it at that for now. So I've been involved in getting an immigration lawyer involved in helping them because I don't specialize in that. But it's just, you would think, right, with everything that she's had to deal with, that that, at least with her case, shouldn't be an issue. Well, it is. Uh, not only is it so an the, issue, I just yeah. think of some, the, I'm, <clears throat> I'm sort of try, and in reading the book, but like trying to picture someone with that kind of fortitude and strength and, and able uh, people who are healthy and are faced with whether it's immigration issues or other kinds of things are not able to do what she does. Um, and obviously it's a result of what you've done for her. Um, but it's just, it is kind of an amazing, She's an amazing lady, um, and as you say, she's young. She's still young. She has, she's only in her 50s. Um, yeah, there is, uh, we've had expert testimony that she will live to, an, her life will be anything but normal, but she will live to a normal life expectancy. She has a, another three decades on this planet. So, um, but, <clears throat> you know, when you talk with her and meet her, her attitude is so positive. She's so happy to be alive. She's so happy to be with her children and it just makes us all, right, just kind of think, wow, uh, what do I have to complain about? You know, I, I had a bad day. I don't think so. Yeah. It puts everything in perspective. That's true. What about the yes. any the repercussions? I mean, that's your business. That's what you do. I mean, you're an attorney. You're trained to do this. But any major repercussions from 
for, for you know, what you were able to accomplish in this trial and the Salvation Army involved and all those kinds of things, political stuff? Well, um, I, I don't know about, about repercussions. I think it, it became a lesson for many people to learn. There were a lot of lessons learned from this. The city made procedures safer relating to demolition. Um, I think the Salvation Army had a wake-up call. I think that uh, it's on everyone's radar about demolitions that ha- take place in cities. I mean, I hate to say this, but it could happen again in Philadelphia. It could happen anywhere in the United States. This is, um, we put so much trust, don't we, in seeing someone doing work in a, in a city or performing, engaging in some type of activity and just presuming that it's going to be safe, and that's not always the case. So I think to sum it up, there's just been a lot of lessons learned from this, I hope. And you talk about demolition. What about in other cities compared now to Philadelphia? Uh, it's a wake-up call, obviously, for Philadelphia. It sounds like from what you said, maybe not everything's being done that could be done, and you always have to be on top of it. Um, but w- where does Philadelphia stand I, I, say, in, yeah, in terms of New York City or any other of the big cities? Well, I think what's really critical when someone applies for a demolition permit that the governing body, whether they're called licenses, inspections in a given city, but they've got to carefully look at the applicant. They've got to evaluate the person's history. What other projects have they done? What was the outcome from those projects? Who is going to be in charge of what's known as means and methods uh, relating to the demolition? Um, What are the neighbors, what is the neighboring situation like? Uh, what kind of protections are in place, what kind of insurance is in place. Because, you know, again, in this situation, um, but for the jury finding the Salvation Army, there would not have been a, I mean, there was another party. The owner had some money, but which he put up, by the way, right from the beginning. But, But for the finding against the Salvation Army, these people wouldn't have been properly compensated. So, you know, these are all the kinds of questions that should be asked when this kind of work is being done. But, but in re- they should be asked, but in reality, what does happen? What, I mean, you know, you well, it's going to depend yeah. on the city, and I'm not familiar with all the details in a given city of how they do things, but I know that in general, um, you know, the government can only, <laughs> because of resources and a number of other issues, um, if we just rely on local government to make things safe, and they should have that responsibility, uh, I think that that's a recipe for disaster because I think that they don't have, in many cases, not all, they don't have the resources, they don't have the expertise, and they don't have um, the wherewithal in general to properly supervise activity the way they should, this kind of activity. So um, it really is a, a, a function of being educated. I mean, if I lived in a certain area and I saw demolition occurring, I tell you what, I'd ask a lot of questions and I would follow up with the local governing body as a starting point to find out who's involved and what's going on. Uh, I just, you know, it's, um, I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of trust with these things. Yeah, I don't either. And just from a personal sort of experiences and living in New York City, I walk by these construction areas, and I'm always uh, somewhat afraid I'll cross the street so that I don't have to go under, let's say, the awnings that they have or that are supposedly protecting you from what's happening uh, in, in the building or the demolition. So 
very and smart. It, yeah, but that's just, you know, sort of an anecdotal kind of thing. I But there has to be more, obviously. And, and there have been serious accidents here in New York City as well. Um, so it is a major problem. And I guess reading your book, I gives you the details of all those, the ins and outs of all of this, which I was never aware of. And uh, yeah. so, it, yeah. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> another one of the themes of the book is it, it's, it's also important because every day in life we deal with challenges. And, you know, one of my challenges, I handle construction matters, but, you know, I do a lot of medical malpractice. And I think because I handle a certain type of practice which, in which I am involved in criticizing people who our society, understandably, views as very you know, important people, doctors, surgeons, they're well-educated, they save people's lives, they do great things. I think it made it easier for me, as compared with the other lawyers, to find ways to constructively criticize an entity like the Salvation Army so that jurors would be willing to do that. You can't just attack an organization like that, like you might, for instance, the ABC Corporation that's involved in demolition work or construction. It's a whole different approach. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that I think another message for people who, are, who read the book or just in general, you know, in life, sometimes you come to the table, even though you may not be the person that has the exact kind of experience that's at issue in a given task, you may come to the table with a fresh insight that actually in some ways may be more effective than someone else. And everyone needs to be listened to and respected relating to their views. And I, I think there's, that's a sort of the underdog kind of theme that's in the book as well that I think others can, can take away. Well, the title of the book again, because we only have a minute left, but Justice Under the Rubble, The Salvation Army Building Collapse, and Andrew Stern, attorney, is the author of this book. As I said in the beginning, it is a page-turner. So, Andy, could you tell us a website we can go to to get more information about the book and about you? Sure, yeah. The, the book is should be easy to find on Amazon, and it's doing well and getting a lot of really favorable reviews and comments from people. And, and I'm and Andrew Stern. My, my web, uh, it's probably, it's, I go by Andy, andy.stern at Klein, K-L-I-N-E, Spectre, S-P-E-C-T-E-R dot com. Andy.stern at KleinSpectre dot com for information about me and the firm that I'm with. Great. Thanks so much, Andy, for being on the show today. Great interview. It was a pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you and all the best. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 